how happy is the blameless vessel's lot. The world forgetting by the world forgot. Eternal sunshine of a spotless mind. Each prayer accepted and each wish resigned. Is there any risk of brain damage? Well, uh, technically speaking, the procedure is brain damage, but it's, it's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. What won't I miss? It's time for a little something. I forget. My notes say I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black, and it's time to discuss Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But they're erasing me, and I have no memory of any of this. My notes say long pause. Really long pause. What is the meaning of a memory? Especially a memory that we return to time and time again. We contextualize and recontextualize and alter the memory simply by remembering it. In Eternal Sunshine, memories have an emotional core, which is more shorthand than explanation. In reality, as the Queensland Brain Institute explains, quote, Memory is the reactivation of a specific group of neurons, formed from persistent changes in the strength of connections between neurons. But what allows a specific combination of neurons to be reactivated over any other combination of neurons? The answer is synaptic plasticity. This term describes the persistent changes in the strength of connections, called synapses, between brain cells. These connections can be made stronger or weaker depending on when and how often they have been activated in the past. Active connections tend to get stronger, whereas those that aren't used get weaker and can eventually disappear entirely. End quote. That is, the more a memory is accessed, the more its connections form and reform, and in the shorthand that means strong memories have more connections, then erasing specific memories can have serious effects on other memories that might have had entirely different origins. Like last week on this show, I suggested that Joel may have actually once had more knowledge about constellations, but that may have been something Clem asked him about a lot. We know they went to the Charles at least twice in their previous relationship, but maybe it was more, or maybe she would ask about the stars whenever they were outside, and Joel would regale her with detailed stories about the constellations and the myths behind them. But with Clementine erased from his mind the night before last, so too was all that knowledge about constellations and mythology because he has associated those things with Clem. And the synapses that corresponded with that knowledge were linked to the synapses that corresponded to the relationship. Greg Miller describes in Smithsonian Magazine May 2010 an experiment performed by Kareem Nader regarding the reconsolidation of memory, that is, countering the notion that long-term memory is not as plastic as short-term. Miller writes, quote, In the winter of 1999, Nader taught four rats that a high-pitched beep preceded a mild electric shock. That was easy. Rodents learn such pairings after being exposed to them just once. Afterward, the rat freezes in place when it hears the tone. Nader then waited 24 hours, played the tone to reactivate the memory, and injected into the rat's brain a drug that prevents neurons from making new proteins. If memories are consolidated just once, when they are first created, he reasoned, the drug would have no effect on the rat's memory of the tone or on the way it would respond to the tone in the future. But if memories have to be at least partially rebuilt every time they are recalled, down to the synthesizing of fresh neuronal proteins, rats given the drug might later respond as if they had never learned to fear the tone and would ignore it. If so, the study would contradict the standard conception of memory. It was, he admits, a long shot. Don't waste your time. This will never work. His boss at the New York University lab, Joseph Ledoux, told him. It worked. 
When Nader later tested the rats, they didn't freeze after hearing the tone. It was as if they'd forgotten all about it. Nader, who looks slightly devilish in his earrings and pointed sideburns, still gets giddy talking about this experiment. Eyes wide with excitement, he slaps the cafe table. This is crazy, right? I went into Joe's office and said, I know it's just four animals, but this is very encouraging. After Nader's initial findings, some neuroscientists poo-pooed his work in journal articles and gave him the cold shoulder at scientific meetings. But the data struck a more harmonious chord with some psychologists. After all, their experiments had long suggested that memory can easily be distorted without people realizing it. End quote. At least a few times in the Groundhog Day Project blog, but also several times in a previous Movies by Minutes podcast of mine, Annihilation Minute, I referenced the philosophical paradox of the ship of Theseus. The short version. You replace a single board of the ship, and that ship remains the ship. Replace another, and it remains the same ship. But at some point, you may have replaced more than half the boards of the ship, or maybe every single board. At what point does a ship become a different ship? Or does it never become a different ship? Furthermore, what if you kept the old boards as you replace them one at a time, and after they've all been replaced, you take that pile of old boards and make a new ship out of them? Is this new ship the ship of Theseus? Or is the old? Now consider your memory as the ship of Theseus. Replace or remove a few boards, you remain the same person. But replace or remove enough of them, and at some point, you must become someone different, right? Joel has lost two years of journal entries, a good portion of the art he has created in those two years, and perhaps two years of memories that really linked to earlier interests. Joel is, on some level, no longer Joel. Except he is fundamentally enough Joel that whatever of Clem is fundamentally Clem will still gravitate toward him, given the opportunity, and he will gravitate toward her. And since this is about love, and especially romantic love, and especially cinematic romantic love, explanation of their interest only matters if we cannot see the evidence of it in their actions and their words. Which is why this extended pre-credit sequence matters in understanding this film. Backtrack into yesterday and consider the following. What is the inciting incident, the call to action, in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? In an earlier draft of the script, Clem invites Joel to her apartment on page 17. In the shooting script, she gives him a drink. In the film, by minute 17, we still don't have our opening titles. Had they left in all of the dialogue on the train or in Clem's apartment, we would have even longer to the titles. Without prior knowledge, we wouldn't even know what this movie is about right now. It's simply a romantic comedy about two people who are awkward and... Cut. Originally in the sentence, I said they probably suffered from mental illness, but that's not really what I meant. As I've stated in previous episodes, Clem is essentially ADHD-coded, and Joel is autism-coded. Sort of. Neither of those are really mental illnesses. That this film has been so dialogue-heavy, and that we specifically skipped the long drive to and from the Frozen Charles means this isn't some romantic road movie like Mad Love or Niagara Niagara, or a less-interested-in-the-road tragic romance between damaged characters like Angel Baby. We meet our main characters in their ordinary world. We should be able to see what their future could be, and so should they. We should have a moment roughly halfway into the first act that puts that future into question. Eternal Sunshine upends that structure because despite Lacuna, despite the erasure of memories, 
despite the story structure not being entirely linear, this is not a film about the erasure of memories per se. If memory has an emotional core, per the film's explanations, then we can assume that personality is built on so many emotional cores, and that something within each of us can survive even the destruction of pieces of us, whether it is boards removed or memories erased. Joel and Clem might not be good for one another in the long term, but they offer something in the short term that the other needs, and we can extrapolate that outward to other films, to our own real-world relationships, to the way we think about who we are. And if we must see something on page 17 that we can look at, especially in retrospect, to explore what this film is about, in the earlier draft, Clem asks Joel in. In the shooting script, she has that line, Drink up, young man. It'll make the whole seduction part less repugnant. Which, what is the fundamental truth therein? Is seduction inherently repugnant? Or is it just hard? For Clem, she chooses alcohol to smooth over the difficult moments, which might not immediately be a bad move. I mean, plenty of people go to bars to meet people. Plenty may have a glass of wine on the first date to forego some anxiety. And there should be anxiety, because any new relationship means new synaptic connections, new upendings and recontextualizings of old pieces of your very identity. You were Joel. You were Clem. Now you are Joel in a relationship with Clem. You are Clem in a relationship with Joel. Life has been transformed, even if much of it has remained the same. And it's not just relationships, but new jobs, new hobbies, new opportunities and ventures. Life is hard. It's trite, but it's true. Clem may oversell the difficulty with that word repugnant, but she isn't far off. And now we're past that. Coming up to Clem's apartment wasn't really a date, but going to the Charles was. This is becoming something. And however much Joel might be comfortable or happy about it, as this minute begins, clearly Clem is comfortable. Or she is so used to being uncomfortable that the effect is the same. She is asleep in the passenger seat of Joel's car, arriving at her apartment in Rockville Center. cut from Clem to an exterior shot of the car coming to stop. 
the scrape in its door, a reminder perhaps that there is something more going on that we do not know. Then we're inside the car, reversed, looking past Clem at Joel, leaning toward her, waiting a beat, blinking, then speaking softly. Joel, Clementine. Reverse, past Joel on Clem, as he gently pats the side of her face. She stirs, eyes still closed, her hand coming up to his as he says, Cock-a-doodle-doo. She grabs two of his fingers and he sits up. In her dreams, does she know whose hand is touching her? In her touch, does some part of him remember who she is? She stirs more, gasps, and starts at realizing where she is, who she's with. And in passing, I must say, most of the time in film and television, when someone is supposed to be just waking up, their eyes are too clear, their control of their movements too planned, and they do not feel like someone who has just been sleeping. Winslet manages uneven, unsure movements, wide, slightly glazed over eyes, and I actually wouldn't be surprised if she had actually been asleep to start this shot. Clem. Hey. She reaches up and pulls at her hoodie almost absentmindedly, but also protectively seeking cover but then realizing she doesn't want it. Joel. Hey. She smiles at him, then looks forward. Clem. Hey. Joel. Sorry, Sorry you. She closes her eyes tightly and leans her head down. We've all surely been there. You don't want to be awake yet, and it's not a headache necessarily, but something inside just isn't having it. Right. Here. She turns abruptly and looks out the window, away from Joel, away from camera, away from us. She sees her apartment, except I wonder, without looking forward in the film to double check, is this where she lived before they got together the first time? Did she keep the same apartment even while she was living with Joel? Or does this location feel a little foreign to her? And somewhere inside she wants to go to his apartment because she doesn't feel at home in her own place. Doesn't feel at home in her own life. We cut to the reverse, past tired and blurry Clem at Joel. She sighs rather loudly and turns forward again. Joel looks at her. He puts his hand to his mouth. He's waiting for her to do something. He might expect her to leave. He might even want her to. Either way, it is her move. Beats pass. Clem, can I come over to your house? She looks at him. And I just praise Winslet's sleepiness performance, but Carrie's flinch at this is wonderful feels at once like she just said the worst possible thing and the best possible thing, and he does not know which it is. Reverse. She closes her eyes again, head down. To sleep? She moves her head forward again, but her eyes are closed, so it's not like she's looking away from him. She's just letting sleep win. I'm so tired. She does open her eyes now for the answer. We cut back to the other angle. Joel faces forward. Joel. Okay. Um, yeah. Sure. Close on Clem. Just her. Clem. Let me get my toothbrush. Joel. Off screen. Yeah. Oh. He leans into frame and reaches across her to open the door, which, on the one hand, her arms are under the jacket. She's got over her like a blanket. But also, he's awkward even when trying to be helpful. Just reverse. And he's even weirder because Carrie raises his hand from the door handle like he's pointing up to her apartment and he looks up there as well and it's like he's telling her where she has to go for that toothbrush, which he doesn't need to tell her. Reverse again and she's out the door, closing it behind her. 
She smiles through the window before turning to walk away from the car. Camera pulls focus to the wrought iron and brick fence as Clem gets to and opens the gate. We hear in the background the sound of, I'm guessing it's what garbage trucks sound like there, because it's early morning. Angle on Joel, putting his head back against the headrest, closing his eyes. And then someone, we won't know who yet, stops outside Joel's window, leans in, and we can see it's Elijah Wood, and he raps on the glass. With his knocking, we reverse to outside, looking past this new arrival, through the glass, at Joel, who stirs but doesn't yet look out at him as the minute comes to an end. Thank you for listening. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for Minutia Ex Machina, every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and every Thursday for more Eternal Sunshine. And you can follow all three shows on one feed. Just search An Existential Trilogy. Follow this show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Spotless Minute. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time. This is it, Joel. God, it's gonna be gone soon. Okay, what's up? I know. What do we do? Look, we're going off. Can you hear me? I don't want this anymore. I want to call it off.